This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. With me today is psychologist Dr. Susan Lynn to discuss her recently published book, Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Business, and the Lives of Children. Dr. Lynn, welcome to the program. Hi, David. I'm so happy to be talking with you. You're very welcome. Dr. Lynn's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, earlier this year, Justin Smith, in his book, The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, argued the Internet is addictive and compatible with our freedom. Its use of algorithms leaves our lives warped and impoverished, and despite these problems, there is little or no democratic oversight. In sum, Smith concluded the Internet is anti-human, a crime against humanity. Concerning the Internet's effects on children, Dr. Lin argues in her book, our digital landscape invades children's privacy in order to use their personal information to drive endless consumerism. Think plastic collectibles for kids. Children's screen use that amounts to upwards of 7.5 hours on average per day for poor minority children substantially more time is having profound effects on children of every age. Dr. Lynn notes generally by threatening childhood development. More specifically, she notes prolonged use is associated with childhood anxiety, conflictual relationships with parents and family stress, depression, diminished language development, eating disorders, erosion of creative play, materialistic values that undermine our planet's caring capacity, obesity, precocious sexuality, sleep sleep disturbances, underachievement in school, and youth violence. And I'm summarizing that list. To discuss how corporations literally game monetizing children, a problem particularly relevant during the holiday season, is again Dr. Susan Lin. As an aside, dedicated listeners may recall I interviewed Daniel Hatcher six years ago regarding his book, The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens, that similarly argued the exploitation of the social safety net for private profit and more recently, my interview with Laura Olson earlier this year regarding her book, Ethically Challenged, her examination of PE's healthcare profiteering. So with that as background, uh, Susan, let's get into this. Um, so I use the phrase um, gaming or uh, how the industry or uh, corporations game, quote unquote, monetizing children. And game is literally what they do. They create games for children online, and that enables them, obviously, as you then go on to explain, uh, uh, gather their personal information, etc. You note, too, you note several games in your um, in your book. I was particularly taken by one that evidently is not, is, is banned or is not on the market, Aristotle, and the other, Fortnite, which is on the market. So maybe with these as examples, could you give a, the listener a general explanation of how these games are designed for the purposes of then using uh, children's personal information, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, Let's start with Aristotle. Um, Aristotle actually um, wasn't a game. It was a um, 
a device um, that Mattel was going to market that um, would go into a child's room when the child was a baby and be able to sing the baby lullabies and, and do all sorts of like parental things. And then as the child, you know, grew up, the idea was that Aristotle would be able to um, answer, help children with homework, you know, and that kind of thing. And um, Aristotle did not come on the market because um largely because of a campaign by what was then um, the Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood and is now called Fair, Fair Play, Play right. Yeah, which is an organization that I and my colleagues founded in 2000. Um, anyway, they launched just a huge campaign, um, and um, Mattel never actually launched Aristotle. So... Um, so Aristotle, as I said, isn't a game. Fort, Fortnite, on the other hand, um, is a game and is um, it's often called a sandbox game. And it's called a sandbox game because it's marketed as um, being able to allow, you know, children to play with other children or people to play with other people like, quote, you know, in a sandbox. Mm -hmm. But um, it's important to remember that Fortnite and playing Fortnite or other games like it aren't anything like sandboxes. When you're in a real sandbox, nobody is um, tracking, you know, your every move in order to monetize it. Nobody is purposely um, fomenting envy um, by, you know, by sort of showing you all the time that other players have more um, skins or more, um, more, you know, things for their avatars that perhaps you can't afford. I mean, it's not that, you know, kids don't envy other kids who have better toys or what seem like better toys in a sandbox, but, but the purpose of Fortnite is not to encourage kids to play. The purpose of it is to make money. And, and what happens as a result of that is just kind of a byproduct of that. Okay, thank you. Um, so let's just stay with, and I appreciate uh, your dis differentiating Aristotle from Fortnite. The former is not is more like an Alexis product than uh, more traditional a game. But... Right. Your your background. You have a um, and and listeners will see per your bio. You have an impressive background, um, and in fact, part that includes um, working with children. Um, and in very, very, you've done work relative to uh, working with children to understand basically grief and loss uh, for a lot, a lot of motivations. And in, in performing that work, you're uh, you employ puppets. You're a puppeteer. Uh, your bio uh, also notes you have you have uh, abilities as a ventriloquist, which sadly we can't demonstrate via the phone here. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I ask you, uh, with that background, you're particularly expert because, as I know, the problems uh, with online or screen use per the list that I provide, which is these are the problems that you note in your book, 
uh, most generically, child development and the erosion of creative play. And I thought that was very interesting. Can you explain exactly how and why uh, the erosion of creative play happens? I mean, that to me seems particularly yes. sad. I mean, depression, anxiety, et cetera, are all, are all certainly significant. But the erosion of creative play I found particularly sad. Yes, I find it um, particularly sad and worrisome. Um, creative play is the foundation of learning, creativity, constructive problem solving. Um, it's it's the way that children wrestle with life to make it meaningful. And as a society, we seem to be, be doing just about everything we can to deprive children of those opportunities. And it, it's it's um, it's not just the screens. I mean, we have to talk to about the screens in the context of um, of the commercialization that that they foist on children and on adults. I mean, basically, it's that combination that the the digitized, commercialized culture that kids wake up to every day. Many kids do. Is um, it it undermines um, it undermines among other things creative play and it does it in a variety of ways and one of the ways that it does it is that um, it it um, the is is the creation of media characters that end up selling products to kids and so. Um, so you have, for instance, SpongeBob SquarePants, and, and maybe you like SpongeBob SquarePants, but then SpongeBob SquarePants also turns up on toys and clothing and food and, you know, and everything else. And, um, and there's such a bombardment of, of um, these characters in children's lives that it becomes... Um, that basically the message to parents is kids need these characters. Kids need Elmo in order to play, you know, or they need Dora the Explorer, or they need Coco Million in order to play. And um, and what happens eventually is that it does become what kids need because that's all that they see. And 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 so. But kids play less creatively with media link toys, you know, especially if they're also involved in, you know, the the media um, property as well. So, so the the um, the way that um, these icons are used to sell products and and pushed on kids that's that's one way that we undermine creative play. The other way is that the um, so many you know of the apps for kids are um, are marketed as promoting creativity, but in fact um, they don't. They limit children's choices all the time. Um, in, in my book, I talk about um, playing a Lego racing game with um with a five-year-old and i i'd already had an experience of legos online products they're not particularly creative but 
but the whole purpose of the game, it wasn't even to win at racing. I mean, you pick a car, and but there are only a limited number of cars. And you can decorate your car, but there are only a limited number of, of decorations. And then once you race, um, the purpose of it isn't even to win. Uh, we finished racing, and the little boy said to me, now we can go shopping. And the purpose of the game was to collect points in order to shop. Now, we weren't using real money, so that made it a little different than some other apps. Um, and, you know, we were choosing these, you know, um, not real things, um, you know, to choose from. So so the purpose of it, of Lego, which, you know, in its original form was an incredibly creative toy and did promote creativity um, and creative play in children. Um, but, but that's not what's happening um, online. And, and the other thing that happens that I think undermines creativity and play is that, that play is about process. It's not about what you get out of it. <laughs> Children play for the sheer joy of the experience. And um, so much of what happens online is about what you get for doing something. So, so everything is rewarded. You get stars. You do something in order to get stars or in order to you know, get something anyway. And, and that's not what play is about. Thank you. In fact, I'll get to most of the book are these chapters that explain these discrete issues or problems. And one of your chapters, obviously how rewarding are rewards question mark, as you suggest, I thought it was very interesting. And I noted this uh, early in the book, you say, and I, I think you're citing someone else's uh, uh, conclusion uh, that the best toys are 90% child and 10% toy. Um, I think yes. that makes the point, right? Yes. The best toys just lie there until somebody picks them up and does something with them. And, and the best toys, as opposed to the best-selling toys, the best toys, the toys that really... Um, encourage healthy child development and the toys that, that promote creative thinking and creative play, um, they don't tell children what to do with them. They, they suggest possibilities. Mm -hmm. And, and then the, then the children um, can play, uh, use them to serve the children's purpose, not the purpose of the toy. The, unfortunately, um, the best-selling toys are often toys that are embedded with computer chips and or linked to media characters and that chirp and beep and dance and move and do backflips um, all by themselves or at the push of a button. And so they don't have any real value for kids. They, they certainly don't have any play value. Um, for children, and yet these toys end up marketing. Um, they're they're easy to market because they look like fun, but but basically all a child is doing is pressing a button. Right, it's more. I mean, it's that's a, not fun. And, right. and I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's a more passive activity, right? 
a pardon? It's a more passive activity. Yes, yes. And not only is it passive, it's reactive. Um, I mean, that, that the children are reacting to the toy. They're not acting with it. And, and that um, is important. The purpose, I mean, play involves effort and acting, or action, rather, not acting. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes it involves <laughs> acting, too, but action, generating it themselves. Kids, you know, when kids are playing, when they're really playing, they're generating the play themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, also early in the book, you note uh, Ronald Reagan's deregulation of children's television. And per your comment about what's best-selling in toys, you said subsequent to the deregulation in 1985, you note in the volume, for the first time, the 10 best-selling toys were linked to children's media. So basically, right. the deregulation led to advertising, which led to um, children's buying toys, which may not be allowing them the most creativity. I was surprised, too, later in the... It's even more than that, actually. Um, It's not just that it led to advertising. I mean, there already was advertising, Mm -hmm. but it became okay to create a program for the sole purpose of selling toys. And that's why, you know, a year later, the 10 best-selling toys were all linked to media programs. Right. You, you state that, and I have it here, legalized creating programs for the sole purpose of selling toys. Yes. yes. I, I, I was surprised to learn also in this volume, there's a lot to be surprised, uh, the, the percent of young of children who have uh, smartphones, 8 to 10-year-olds, it's between 19 and 32 percent, and over half of 11-year-olds own a smartphone. Um, right. And... And that is um, going to that is increasing, and um, I just I just read an article, um, you know, talking about the push to sell you know smartphones to ever younger children, and then to create content that only takes a couple of minutes, so that kids can pull out their phones when they're waiting for something. You know, basically what. What these companies want to do is, you know, capture children's attention and um, and fill the children's lives with their products. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many people, how many teenagers do you see out and about walking holding the uh, a smartphone in their hand? I would that always amazes me. Uh, wouldn't, right. wouldn't occur to me <laughs> to carry. I, I I loathe the phone to begin with. I certainly wouldn't carry it in my hand. Um, Let's go on. Most of this book is is, uh, about these discrete chapters. Uh, I noted one, how rewarding are rewards, question mark, and the answer to that, uh, the listener, my guess, is not that rewarding. Um, The nagging power of pester power, divisive devices, the the brand plays on, uh, brown, a click, buy, repeat. I was was particularly interested in, in, in... the your discussion on frictionlessness or or frictionless, uh, and right. I and I don't know if, I don't Reducing know if that's friction. right. Is I don't know if that is, you know, you cite Elon Musk. I don't know if he he he's um, we can attribute the the word to him, but reducing friction. Could you explain how that is a that's been used or exploited to for by corporations to succeed yeah. in this space? Yes, actually, I cite Jeff Bezos. 
Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, and and he he's um, I don't know if he was the first person, but he's the first person that I found, you know, who talked about the importance of reducing friction. Um, and uh, you know, I I say in the book, I'm a psychologist. To me, reducing friction means you know helping couples get along better or <laughs> right. families get along better. Right. But but he's talking about just making it as easy as possible to sell things, you know, to buy things, um, to eliminate um, any hurdles that might, you know, where people might stop and think before they purchase something, but just to make it as smooth and easy as possible. And that's what they meant, what, what marketers mean when they talk about reducing friction. Right. And, I, and as my notes uh, here, uh, remove any barrier hurdle between the product offer and the purchase and uh, delivering such that, as you say further, uh, quoting you, every experience ends in a purchase. I mean, because that's the goal. Uh, that is the goal. Right. right. Yes. All right. Let's, uh, we're going to get. That's the goal. And, and that's parents. Like, that's one of the things that when I, you know, I talk to parents and that's one of the things they said that every time they go someplace with their children, there's some place to buy something there, you know, and, and, you know, the, so it, it's true, not just online, but even, you know, in real life often, you know, the, the end goal of whatever it is, is to get people to buy things. Mm-hmm. And that's the um, that's your chapter on nagging. The nagging uh, problem corporations provide tools to help kids become more successful naggers, uh, and this results in family conflict, as you note, overspending and debt. Um, what I was, what I thought was somewhat, I wasn't completely surprised, but I was actually fairly stunned. Again, you have several chapters that describe aspects of this um, branded learning, divisive. Uh, devices, etc. But the two chapters I thought particularly um, were uh, concerned, titled Big Tech Goes to School. Um, and then there was a, a, a related chapter, I'm looking here, um, Branded Learning. So this is this is corporate influence in the classroom or in, in uh, educational materials. Um, you cite the American Coal Foundation's U.S. of Energy for fourth graders. Uh, which was promoting, obviously, fossil fuels. Uh, you also cite the Koch brothers, Oklahoma's Energy Resources Board's activities. Uh, I thought this was not surprising, but somewhat. McDonald's school-based nutritious program extolling the virtue of fast food, Discover and Visa teaching financial literacy, and the list goes on. Um, part of the explanation, I'm assuming, is that these corporations are subsidizing schools' educational material expenses, correct? Well, um, these corporations um, position themselves as subsidizing schools, but um, in fact, my colleagues, the National Educational NEPC Policy, I can't remember, um, it's at Arizona State. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, they what they found is that Alex Molnar found is that in fact schools get very little money that they embrace commercialism they embrace these companies 
um, marketing in schools, but in fact, they get very little money from them. And, and that's a really, you know, it's, it's, it's really troubling. I mean, corporations shouldn't be in schools anyway. Um, schools should be about, among other things, creating, um, encouraging critical thinking. And mm-hmm. if somebody is, um, is funding you, it's hard to be critical of them. And so, um, even if so, even if schools were being really subsidized by these corporations, it would be terrible to have marketing, marketing products in schools. But in fact, the schools are getting very little money. Mm-hmm. And the acronym you have in this discussion is SEMS, Sponsored Educational Materials. Yes. Okay. Um, you know, marketed as free corporate classroom materials, etc. Let me let me go to um, you have probably one of the two uh, two of the one of the two lengthiest chapters um, is um, resistant uh, resistance parenting, where you give advice for parents relative to how to better uh, manage uh, children's consumption uh, of of these digital products. Um, Part of the chapter, you discuss what parents could do by sort of age cohort, and then you provide some more general advice. Could you highlight some of uh, those recommendations? I think those would be Mm -hmm. very useful. Yes, but one thing um, before I do that that I think it's important to say is that this is a a problem for society, Mm -hmm. and and it needs societal um, solutions. And that, you know, the idea that one family in isolation can, you know, combat these trillion-dollar companies is, you know, kind of laughable, really. But that said, um, social change takes a lot of time, and parents need advice, you know, now. They need help now. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so my suggestions, you know, range from do less. Whatever you're doing, try doing less. Carve out time um, that is device-free and commercial-free in your house. Have, you know, family meals where there's no television on and where there are no, there are no devices, in, you know, at the table with you so that you really encourage conversation with kids. Um, you know, remember that for, for babies and toddlers – um, there's pre- there's there's pretty much nothing that um, that a a digital t- device can offer them really. It, um, what babies and toddlers need is to explore the world with all of their senses, to be in you know relationships with adults who love them, to um, you know to be able to um, to to talk to be talked to and to be read to. And that's all, you know, there's plenty of research supporting all of that as beneficial. And so yet, um, yet there's, you know, huge numbers of products, not just screens, but also um, electronic toys, for instance, that are marketed as educational for babies, but there's no evidence that they really are educational. Mm-hmm. I mean, the one screen experience that, that can be beneficial to babies is, you know, when when they are 
um, digitally chatting with adults who love them who are too far away to see them in person. So, so you know, that's um, and you know that's an example. Okay, thank you. You do have some statistics on uh, not uh, infants or babies, but preschoolers and and hours per day, two point five on average per day with screens. You did mention, you did note, of course, this is a larger problem, and that, of course, leads me to. I do want to discuss um, policy. You do discuss this uh, towards the end of the volume. You note a twenty twenty British law. Um, age-appropriate design codes. Uh, you do mention yes. uh, legislation that has been uh, proposed in the U.S. Congress. Um, you're well aware, of course, this session of uh, the Congress is ending. My review shows that not much of this proposed legislation moved. So we start over in January. So this legislation, all these bills, uh, would have to be resubmitted. Uh, there's the Child Online Privacy Protection Act, you know, the Senate has a COSA Kids Online Safety Act, uh, Kids Internet Design and Safety Act. Uh, there are various others. Can you provide an overview? You do say um, that basically legislation uh, comes down to um, uh, sort of two issues. One has to do with um, protecting children's privacy, and the other has to do basically um, with how these games our applications are developed. Right. So um, there are two bills that made it out of committee. Um, my, I think that my activist friends are still hopeful, at least about one of them. Um, but so the, the Kids Online Safety Act, um, and what that does is offer a du- what's called a duty of care Mm-hmm. which states that a covered platform has to act in the best interest right. of a minor that uses the platform. So that has to do with with embedding um, child development into the very fabric of, of whatever is being built um, online. And um, I, I, you know, I think that that's um, incredibly important. And I think that, um, the fact that it, that that bill made it out of committee is um, is a remarkable achievement for um, activists. I mean, there the you know it there hasn't been a bill that really dealt with the way that corporations target children through tech and media. I mean, in decades. Right. You did note there is a um, uh, there is the. U.S. COPA Child Online Privacy Protection Act that went into effect in 2000 requires verifiable parental permission before collecting or using kids' personal info or sharing it with third parties. But you note that uh, in part, beyond being woefully out of date, the FTC really hasn't done much or exerted much energy in enforcing uh, the the 2000 rather law. Right. And the other thing that the Kids Online Safety Act... um, I believe also does is um, give some more power to the Federal Trade Commission. Um, the Federal Trade Commission was um, really um, hamstrung more in 2000, I mean, in um, 1980 after it um, 
it said that it was going to ban marketing to children on television, children under the age of eight. Mm-hmm. And then market junk food advertising to children under the age of 12. What happened is that every corporation who had anything to gain financially from marketing to kids on television put enormous pressure on Congress, which did you know, even defund the Federal Trade Commission for a while and then hamper its ability to regulate marketing to kids. Mm-hmm. You had make uh, if I could throw in this this sort of related question. You do mention what the American Psychological Association has done and hasn't done. You, you do note that uh, you and your colleagues urged the APA to declare that it is unethical for psychologists to work with tech companies to manipulate children, and that correct me if I'm wrong. That went nowhere, correct? Yeah, that has that has gone nowhere. You you are correct. Any any. I mean, I, I find it um, personally. I've, as a psychologist, I found it appalling that um, psychologists have long, you know, worked with advertising um, advertising um, companies mm-hmm. um, using principles of child development to manipulate children for profit. I mean, I think, you know, that's um, just a terrible thing for psychologists to do. And I think that the APA, I mean, I was on a committee 20 years ago that was urging the the um, American Psychological Association to say that psychologists should not work on, on marketing to kids and that that was unethical. And they refused to do that then. Any any, ex- well. any explanation for that? I mean, that's just obviously startling. I, the the explanation that I got from that was that it wasn't illegal, hmm. and and therefore um, it wasn't unethical. Uh, that's I did I don't buy that, but you know that was one of the explanations. Well, you know they say ethics is a poor cousin to the law, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. In any event, uh, Susan, thank you for the word about our time. Thank you so much for this overview. There's a lot more here that we could have discussed. This is this is excellent work, very detailed, well thought, substantive. Um, I think anybody who does is works in education ought to give this a read. And then obviously, it has relative. We didn't get into the specifics relative to specific healthcare issues, uh, behavioral and mental health disorders, eating disorders. Um, violence, obesity, which of course translates obviously to diabetes, and of course we know uh, uh, right. diabetic children, of course, is increasingly a problem. You know, there's all sorts of uh, public health issues or harms or concerns here as well. Uh, pretty self-explanatory, however. So with that, Susan, I really genuinely appreciate your time and explanation. We wish you every success of the book with the book, and let's hope the next Congress, uh, starting January third, uh, takes this. Uh, uh, really, again, public health issue uh, up again. Appreciate the effort. Thank well, you. Well, thank you. I enjoyed talking with you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.